from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Ed Bowman. Ed is a Baha'i and has been a pioneer in the field of holistic nutrition for over 35 years. His vision and leadership have inspired thousands of people to transform their lives in the form of wellness, community, and peace. He received his Master's of Education from the University of Massachusetts and a Ph.D. in Health Promotion from the University of New Mexico. Ed created the Eating for Health model to teach individuals to make nutritionally comprehensive food choices and founded Bowman College in 1989 with a mission to change the world through better nutrition and healthful living. I started the interview by asking Ed where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was on 16th and Calorama Road, which is what they call Adams Morgan. It was practically in, in sight of the White House. And it was a multinational, multicultural area. And my folks were really great in letting me play with foreign kids from all over, you know, South Mm. American and Asian and African and the whole nine yards. So I think that was a real gift that I started in a a mixed culture. What was religious life like growing up? Yeah, Uh, my folks were Jewish and I'm Jewish. You know, we had a kind of reformed Jewish home, and I went to Temple, and I was bar mitzvahed. We celebrated Jewish holidays, and we had a good kind of family culture. So I still honor some Jewish traditions, because it's fun to do holidays with my Jewish friends. What did you do after high school? What did I do? I went to college. I was a pretty good student, and I went to Syracuse University, and I studied political science. I was going to be a lawyer, because growing up in D.C., I worked as a law clerk in my uncle's office in D.C. and had some connections with the government. 64 to 68, I went to Syracuse University. Then it got interesting. Thing I was wanting to not go into the Vietnam War, so I took a summer program at American University and studied education, and then that fall in 68, I was teaching sixth grade in the inner city. No, it was very exciting, and I had to improvise a lot because half the kids couldn't read and, and really weren't very focused on school, so I, I made it interesting. I did it for about a year, and then um, I had the kind of an interesting decision. My folks had encouraged me to join the National Guard, so I had joined the National Guard, and then I had to take basic training in South Carolina, and that was kind of a, a real kind of strange scenario because I was a college graduate, you know, with sort of intellectual and metaphysical orientation, being around a bunch of kids who were young and uneducated and going to Vietnam, I really had to learn how to kind of cope with, with that foreign setting. It was tough. It was really tough. The sergeants burned my books. I was reading spiritual books. I was reading Alan Watts' Psychotherapy East-West when we would have a break. And then he would say, what are you reading, a dirty book? I go, no, it's a, it's a book about religion and, and psychology. 
and they you know threw it in the threw it in the garbage. Oh my gosh! So it, was, it was just it was totally bizarre, you know. And I wanted to get out. So when I came back to D.C., there were riots going on, and there I was, a military policeman, kind of trying to tell my friends who were rioting, you know, against the war and, and injustice, go home, you know. <laughs> I opted out of the National Guard. I got a military discharge. I got a medical discharge for for psychology, psychological reasons. I went to a shrink, and I, I said, this is the wrong place for me to be, and she kindly wrote me a letter. You know, that was a big life-altering scenario. Yeah. And then I resumed and went to law school in Boston. And then uh, after a short while there, less than a year, I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. And working in the system for political change wasn't really my calling. It was more about perhaps spiritual change or, or studying natural law instead of corporate law. And so I had kind of a revelation that I was going to study health and food and nutrition and called my folks in 69 and said, I'm leaving law school. And they were not too pleased with that. They said, Ed, I think you've lost your mind. <laughs> and I said, not really. I've just kind of, you know, it's a, a course change and I'll be fine. And then I moved to the Amherst area and uh, lived on a farm in Western Massachusetts and spent seven years in Western Mass and decided to get a master's in education because I am an educator, it just seemed natural. And I, I went to uh, the School of Education, the University of Massachusetts, and who was the Dean of Education but Dwight Allen, and who was one of my lead professors but Daniel Jordan. So as a 25-year-old guy, I got exposed to the faith, and I got exposed to the principles of, of Baha'i, and it was, it was really tremendous. It was just great. This transition, you seem to have been in some kind of search mode when you were going yeah. to law school. How did it come to being health and nutrition? How did, how did you make that connection? Well, you know, actually I saw a friend from high school. He came up to visit, and the kid looked great. He was glowing, and in high school he looked pretty normal. And I was, I was fairly healthy, but, you know, not into the field, so to speak. And I asked my friend, what have you been doing? He said, well, I'm a vegetarian and I do yoga. And, I, and just by seeing someone with that kind of disposition and, and a shift in his being, I went, that looks really good to me. And I, I decided to be a vegetarian and started studying, you know, different systems, different Eastern and Western systems of health and healing and did some yoga and studied body work. And then I got a job as a writer for a man who had a spiritual system. He was a Greek man. And he didn't speak English too well, so he paid me to listen to him lecture and then to write it up in some kind of intelligent form so that it could be shared with, with friends and the community. It wasn't particularly a commercial venture on this man's part, but he, he had a, a pretty deep spirituality that was based in kind of Greek tradition, maybe even the Greek Orthodox Church, but it wasn't a orthodoxy. It was more just kind of science of life and and health and, and working through different, you know, different levels, you know, from physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, social, you know, things like that. And so it was just interesting being a young guy and being out of school for a while to start to listen to an older, wiser person from a, another culture and, and kind of write it up in an intelligent way. And what farm did you work on in Western Mass? 
Well, you know, again, I, I, I've always been one to listen to my inner guidance and just to follow it. I went to the country and, and rented a farm with my girlfriend who became my wife. And then we did the first Vipassana meditation retreat in the United States in 1971. Friends of mine had gone to India and met teachers of Buddhist meditation and invited them to come to the U.S. And they came to our farm, and there were five of us living on a property, and and we did a 10-day quiet meditation course. And at the 10th day, after sitting quietly for a long time, the phone rang, and it was my neighbors, and said there's an organic farm for sale down the road. And the owner, Al Perkins, had nine kids in a 160-acre farm, and his kids didn't want to take over the property, that he wanted to sell it to some new people to maintain the integrity of the farm. And he and I went over there in the fall of maybe 1970, and my friend said, what do you think? I said, it looks fabulous, looks great. And we bought it for $70,000. So, you know, before you knew it, there I was not only renting a farm, but purchasing an organic farm in Conway, Massachusetts. There were five of us who shared the mortgage, and we put all of our money in a common pool. So we we shared our incomes, we kept our savings back, and then we paid $243 a month to, you know, pay the mortgage of the farm. I got into farming and then into kind of community organizing. I started a food, food buying club, and then we started an organic restaurant because I was really tapped into the organic food movement and was able to meet teachers like Misho Kushi from Japan, who brought macrobiotics to the West, and Ann Wigmore, who brought kind of raw food and, and wheatgrass into the culture, and a naturopathic doctor named Pavo Irola, who was in Philadelphia, who was bringing European teachings. And as a young guy in my 20s, these were people I met and I studied with, and then I brought that into our restaurant, and then... Uh, started teaching cooking classes and having community gatherings at the restaurant where we would have uh, meetings and poetry readings and musical events and get-togethers in this factory town of about 20,000 people. So it was, again, a very interesting mixed culture of old-timers who had been there and, and, you know, it used to be a factory town and newcomers like myself just enjoyed being out in the in the wild, you know, in in, in beautiful country and you know, able to to buy property and and grow food. The folks I was with, they were very much into this Eastern religion, and I was into kind of a more eclectic spirituality. And then they they formed a a center called the Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, which is going strong to this day. I really liked it, but it was a bit of an ashram, Mm -hmm. and I was a bit more social and, and kind of a community guy. So in 75, I said, I'm going to go to naturopathic medical school in Taos, New Mexico. So I left the farm and I went to New Mexico and studied natural medicine, which was part of my developing skills and knowledge in that area. Very much drawn to the West, even though I loved living in Western Massachusetts, too. Now, the natural food restaurant that you started. Yeah, it was called Home Comfort. Home Comfort. And was that in Greenfield, Massachusetts? It was in Greenfield, Massachusetts, yeah. yeah. And some of those folks actually started a sister restaurant later on, maybe in the 90s, in Northampton called Three Squires. 
So they stayed around that area, and I left. I left in 76. But mm-hmm. for, for three or four years, I was the chef at uh, Home Comfort, and every day I'd go to the market or, or you know work with the foods that we had, some of which we grew ourselves, and then cook from scratch based on the seasons, and we were all vegetarians. So it was, it was interesting being in a, in a town where a lot of people ate meat and potatoes, we decided to add seafood to our menu. So we had salmon and, and shrimp scampi. We wouldn't eat it. We would just poke at it and cut into it to make sure it was, it was done properly. But it actually was a very healthy cuisine because seafood vegetarian cuisine is probably the healthiest food there is. And then we made breads from scratch, from whole grain. We even ground the bread, the, the flour up in a mill. So got a lot of exercise, just, you know, grinding flour and made homemade ice cream from cow's raw cow milk that came from our farms and was it was a beautiful thing and a, a full dinner was 350 so that was back in the day when was it that you went to UMass where was this where did UMass I went fit to UMass in? in 71 72 I got a master's in 1972 and then I went to teach because I got a, okay. a, a degree in education but when I went into the public school system as a school counselor I wasn't a, a subject teacher I it was it was more about counseling my specialty was called human relations, so I did a lot of groups and, and kind of things of that nature. It was too progressive. What I learned was a little more student-friendly than the teachers and the principals were comfortable with. I would say, you know, give the kids a chance to speak and, and you know, don't be so harsh and cultivate individual thought and, and some art, artist activity. But it, it, it was a little more than the public school was ready for at that time, so... Mm-hmm. Again, it was a short-lived career, and, and that's when I decided I think I'll be a farmer instead of a teacher. <laughs> Albeit having a master's degree in education gave me good tools, mm-hmm. you know, as an educator, which, you know, I've used right. and, and, you know, continued on with. So you were introduced to the Baha'i faith when you were at UMass? Yeah. And yeah. What, did you, uh, what did you do with it when you were introduced to it? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because... You know, there was a lot of emphasis on uh, overcoming prejudice. And I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I had black roommates in college and liked black music. And, you know, so having a multicultural background, it made a lot of sense to me. And I was comfortable and I I was active in in certain kinds of kind of socioeconomic projects around the campus. And my studies with Dan Jordan really influenced me on, on self-responsibility and really, you know, cultivating the inner essence. So it wasn't, you know, Baha'i, but it, it, it had a lot of Baha'i flavor to it. And Dan Jordan said to me that I could be a teacher. So when you're 25 and, and a brilliant man tells you that you're a teacher and that you have, you know, a good way of organizing information and a good heart, that, that was really very compelling. But being Jewish... I was Jewish. I didn't immediately, you know, go to the faith or study the teachings, you know, in a lot of depth. What was interesting is when I moved to California, there was a woman who picked up a book that I wrote. I wrote a book called The Holistic Health Handbook in 77, 78, and that book sold a quarter of a million copies. So it was a successful book, and I was one of the first people to bring in the concept of holistic health body, mind, spirit, and, and environment and culture. So this gal read this book in Coconut Grove, Florida, 
and decided to get on a bus and come to Berkeley and meet me and, and study with me and study holistic health. So one day she knocked on my door, and there I was, and there she was, and she said, I'd really like to study your, your, your course, but I'm a little short of funds. Could I help you? Could I be an assistant? I said, sure, if you can cook. And she goes, yeah, I'm a terrific cook. So I said, well, I, I'm having a health fair next week in Berkeley. If you can make desserts, apple crisp, we'll be fine. She said, well, my name is Chris, so I can make a crisp. <laughs> well, it turns out Chris was a Baha'i. She became my girlfriend, and then by being close to the Baha'i in that way, and then it refreshed my Baha'i memories, which had you know, kind of fallen a little bit to the backside. And going to Baha'i functions with her, that was 1980. That really got me more interested in the faith. But I was still holding fairly strong to my Jewish roots, largely because of my dad and my mom. You know, they're Jewish and really, really proud of that, and so was I. But Chris would say, you're, you're very Baha'i. You know, you're, you're very, you know, universal, and you're very kind, and you, all the values and the virtues and the principles, you seem to be kind of innately there. And I go, well, that's nice, but I'm, I'm there coming from a Jewish perspective. But when I went to graduate school, I felt kind of lonesome because I left California with her and went to University of New Mexico in Albuquerque to get a Ph.D., in health education, and because I was more progressive and from the East Coast, West Coast, I really didn't feel like I was part of things. You know, I felt kind of isolated, because in California, I had been very engaged and started a holistic health center and classes and clinic and school and, you know, very active. But the Baha'is were really very wonderful to me. And then there was one Baha'i named Cambys Victory, in Albuquerque, he said, you know, Ed, you know, I really want you to study the tablet of Ahmad and read that tablet and see if that resonates with you. And, and if so, you know, let's talk about it. So I went, okay, that seems like a good idea. So I, I deepened on that tablet. I read it several times and I reflected on it. And, and by this time, I was married to Chris. And then it just really spoke to me in a deep way. And also, we had a young child. So it really spoke to me that up until that point, I had been a non-Baha'i spouse. And there's quite a few of those where, you know, one, one person's a Baha'i and the other's a non-Baha'i. And, and, and I just decided, you know, I'm going to take a leap of faith here. And for two weeks, I'm going to see what it would be like to be a Baha'i. I'm not going to declare, but I'm going to just really you know, shift my, my own sense of, of commitment to the faith and study more and really dig deeper into the teachings of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha'u'llah and so forth. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks, I felt more connected. I felt connected to everybody. I felt connected to mankind and, and, uh, and this whole sort of higher calling that I feel like I've had. And I said, guess what? I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be a Baha'i. And she, she could have fallen off the chair. <laughs> it was really great. And then all my all my folks in my community, I, I was in Albuquerque at that time. You know, they were very happy. And, and that was around 19, I was trying to think if it was 87 or 88, but, you know, somewhere in that point. So I guess that's going on 25 years. What part of the Tablet of Ahmad, which is a tablet written yes. by Baha'u'llah, Baha'u'llah, what part of that tablet really resonated for you? Do you remember? Yes. 
it said in my paraphrase, it said that the people are veiled in illusion and, you know, walking around not, you know, knowing the truth. And if if you seriously study Baha'i faith and study the words of Baha'u'llah as a prophet of God, because that was a hard thing to accept Baha'u'llah as a prophet of God when I didn't know him. You know, again, Jewish, you have quite a... <laughs> quite a conditioning there, and even distrust of other religions. And I guess a lot of people have some of that if they're, you know, coming from a, you know, religious Judeo-Christian or whatever tradition. But anyway, but it said if you if you dismiss, you know, this prophet, you're dismissing all the prophets of all time. And I went, whoa, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not in position to do that. And really, there's truth here that I can't dispute, even though it's it's a little outside of my comfort zone because I, I found the teachings to be wonderful, but also, you know, culturally set in, in another culture in another time. So it's, it's just an ongoing kind of understanding and, and, and living the life. But I'm glad I made that commitment. And it's, it's comforting to me to have a connection to the faith because I get nourished by it every day, be it the writings and be it the community and um, and, the, and the messages from Universal House of Justice, it's its really good. Just had a Rizwan letter where it said, you know, take a look at where we are today. You know, take a look at what's going on in the world today and, and see if you can, you know, contribute to the conversation in a meaningful way, you know, with Baha'i principles. And I'm in a lot of conversations. I talk to a lot of people. I talk to students. I talk to professors. I talk to doctors, I'm on, I do seminars, sometimes I'm on the radio, and where it's appropriate, I, I mention I'm a Baha'i, and Baha'i has really influenced my, my worldview, and even influenced a system of nutrition that I've created, because I've created a model called Eating for Health, which was an alternative to the USDA model, and for me, on the inner level, it, it, it reflects kind of inclusion rather than duality. So it appreciates all systems and the, and the common principles of all systems and looks to be progressive and also requiring individual thinking rather than, you know, telling people what's true. I like to tell my students that I'm teaching you how to think, not what to think. Mm-hmm. And you have to make decisions and choices and see what works for you. And the teachings and the reflections I've had with from the Baha'i faith, I've been able to translate both into the nutrition content and also into the to the way I I run my college because I'm the president of a nutrition college. Right. I want to get into that at some point in the interview. What was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Um, they had to sign on to the marriage, and so I'd been going out with Chris for four years, five years. And they knew her, and she's a wonderful human being, but she's a Baha'i. She's the other to them. They're Jewish. She's Baha'i. So when when I said to my folks, we're going to get married, and we we need your consent, we'd like your consent, my dad said, well, I've, I've heard Baha'i is anti-Semitic. I go, Dad, I don't know where you heard that, <laughs> but nothing could be further from the truth. You know, Baha'i recognizes the good of all prophets and teachers, and, you know, we're monotheistic. It's the same God for all of us. So I had to remind him of that. And then he said, well, I'll consent to marriage if you have a Jewish wedding and you're married by a rabbi. And at the time, it was only a few, like a month before our wedding, 
we weren't planning to get married by a rabbi. We were going to do kind of a, a Baha'i ceremony and not traditional Jewish ceremony. So being kind of a, an accommodator, I went, okay, Dad, we're going to have two weddings. We're going to have a Jewish wedding and a Baha'i wedding. Would that work for you? And he goes, sure, that would work, because I was not Baha'i at the time. So we found a rabbi who would marry us in Marin County, and we had a, a very small family wedding, and it was beautiful, and Chris was very happy about that and very happy to be received by my family. And then on Sunday, we had a uh, a bigger wedding where we invited lots of friends and all of all different you know, backgrounds and so forth, and my dad was very gracious and accepted it. Over time, you know, he began to see that I was a Baha'i and it was working really well, and that I also honored Jewish background and, and also gave my daughter an op- option of having Jewish culture and also having Baha'i culture, and she's, she's very comfortable in both, in, you know, in lots of cultures. He had to get to know what Baha'i looked like and felt like, and, 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 and he observed the, the good effect that it was having on me, and that, and that I don't stand against anything. I don't say this is better than that. I said, you know, Baha'i is it's a progressive form, and it's a way of uniting mankind and bringing all the religions to the table, and that's something that means a lot to me. So he, he appreciated that, and my mom appreciated that. My mom passed away before I became a Baha'i. My mom never met my wife, Chris, or my daughter, Jessica, which is a shame. She got cancer. And I said to my mom, cancer is a systemic illness. It's not a local problem. And she was treated with a mastectomy. Mm. And I went to her oncologist and said it would be really helpful for her if she did some integrated complementary care where she also did nutritional things to to complement the medical care. But her oncologist wasn't comfortable with that. He said, that's not my paradigm. And then she had a recurrence, and then she got very ill. She started to add the nutrition work to her chemotherapy, but it was a little too late. So that was a heartbreaker for me because she was only 60 years old when she passed. Mm. And it gave me a lot of commitment. You know, it strengthened my commitment to help other people with cancer because I saw that, you know, her life could have been extended. And, you know, since then I've been able to help a lot of people in that situation. And bringing Baha'i principles into the healing arts is is really wonderful. And it's actually something that adds a dimension that makes it more than just diet. Yeah, and actually I wanted to ask you what the Baha'i teachings are on health. Yeah. Well, to paraphrase, there's physical health, and when there's a physical problem, Baha'u'llah said, get a good doctor and, and work with a good doctor and take care of yourself and, and don't drink and don't smoke and don't go to excess and have good food, largely plant-based. In the future, mankind will become vegetarian. And then there's the whole spiritual component, and that's also very important, that loss of connection to spirit or God will create a great hunger and, and disconnection within them. So as as people reconnect with Creator, um, it really helps them to kind of mobilize their healing. And using Baha'i prayers um, is a really useful tool for people who are ill to activate what I would say is either a self-healing response or a spiritual response. 
Ed, you're no stranger to founding institutions from it being a med- meditation retreat to a farm yeah. to a restaurant. So, yeah. so tell me the beginnings of the inspiration for creating this college that you have founded. Okay. Well, I just saw the truth of the food system, you know, way back in the 60s. And I saw that the food had really been packaged and processed and a lot of added flavors and colors and preservatives and and artificial ingredients, and that it was contributing to ill health. And I I probably recognized that over 40 years ago. And that then there was the whole second movement or renaissance of, of natural, organic, local, seasonal foods with herbs and spices and traditional remedies. So I love studying the traditional remedies from all cultures, east, west, north, south. And I also love studying biochemistry. So when I was looking for a PhD, I went to the University of California at Berkeley. And I said, well, I've started a clinic, and I've written books, and I have seven years of of clinical experience, and have a master's in education. I'd like to take a PhD in nutrition. And they went, well, first of all, you have to do a lot of prerequisites, because you had a political science and education background, not a conventional science background. I went, well, okay, I could do that. But they said, we're not really into, we're not advocates for natural food. You know, we're, we're, we, we have a dietetics program, and the American Dietetic Association says there's really little benefit from um, organic food, natural food. You know, it's kind of a hype. And so I went, wow, that's, that's pretty sad. So I didn't see any schools that were teaching um, nutrition based on kind of traditional food models. And so after I got my PhD, I was a little bit unclear of, like, what am I going to do now? Because I didn't really want to work in academia. And I, I, I now a, a PhD in health education and health promotion. So it was the idea of teaching people community-wide about health and, and particularly with an emphasis on food. So my wife reminded me that I was really happy when I was teaching holistic health and nutrition and I had a clinic and creating a community around wellness. And that's what I was doing in California. And I I was a little displaced in graduate school. So I came back to California and I visited friends who had a school. It was a school that was a massage school. So they taught therapeutic massage and they taught some body-mind sciences and things of that nature. And I said, could I participate and add a program, add a nutrition course? And they went, sure, that would be great. So I Actually, I missed a step. I I had gone and done some work at a place called Hartwood College, which was in Northern California, and gotten a master's degree in nutrition by writing a nutrition consultant curriculum. So I I skipped that step. But that's Mm -hmm. what I did in the mid-80s, 83 to 85, before I went on and got a Ph.D. in health education. So when I had that course and I taught it there at Western in uh, Northern California, I brought that back to Sonoma County, which is where I live now, about an hour north of the Bay, and, and added that course to a, an institute that was a nonprofit and had a mission that was similar to my mission, is to teach people to take care of themselves and to be well and, and to be more self-reliant, which was really what I learned from Dan Jordan back in my early days in getting my master's in Amherst about you know, self-responsibility. And, and really developing, you know, the whole person. 
And then that school shifted and, and changed, and before you knew it, I was the primary program, and the other programs had had dropped off, and it went through some, some changes, and it had gotten sold. So initially, I didn't start it. I was part of it. But when it got sold, it, it went through difficulties, and then all of a sudden, I had a program, but I didn't have a school. So I decided to, to start a college to kind of step up to the plate. I was in my early 40s then. It was 1982. I mean, 1989. And, and started this program and became the director of it. And it started in one campus in Katati, California. And people would, would come from all over. I had people even even flying in and taking the train and all that because there was a real interest in natural health and whole foods. And then out of that, I, I developed a culinary program. So initially, it was a clinical nutrition program, how to work in the medical culture and bring food and herbs and supplements to people who were dealing with health issues, both either prevention, but in most cases, more towards recovery. Because prevention, it's, it's a good concept and people nod at it, but they usually eat, drink, and be merry until they get sick. And then when they get sick, they go, whoa, what am I going to do? And at that point, changing their diet and changing their lifestyle and changing their attitude and cultivating a spiritual life becomes much more important. And then as people get really, really sick where they have, you know, a life-threatening disease, people really show up and and pay attention. So, you know, we did a combination of prevention and and maintenance, but mostly recovery for people who are ill. So while I was doing the school, I also had a clinic called Partners in Health. I would work with an acupuncturist and also, you know, either someone from counseling or fitness to create a complementary program. And then also there were MDs who we could refer to when people had medical issues. So bringing the nutrition into a kind of an integrated health and, and clinical setting. How large is Bowman College today? Well, we have four campuses, one in Santa Cruz, California, Berkeley, California, and Pingrove, California, and then we also have one in Boulder, Colorado. So those are brick-and-mortar classrooms, and people take either a six-month natural chef program or they take an 18-month nutrition program. And then we also have an online, the nutrition course can be taken online. The cooking would be tough to do. It's hard to taste food when you're in Northampton. I can't taste it in California. So we have a couple, 300 students a year who are involved in a professional training program and then also community classes as well. I'd call it a middle-sized school. You mentioned recovery. This sounds like there's an aspect of treating people as well as training people. Well, the training is to prepare people to work with other health professionals. So a nutrition consultant or a natural chef is not a standalone primary care provider. They're really adjunctive. So in a perfect world, they're working under physician supervision. And now there's more naturopathic physicians, which is what I studied way back when. We didn't have a lot of awareness of natural medicine, but, you know, in the 70s, So that's why I changed my course and decided to be a professor, a teacher, Ph.D. instead of a N.D. But, you know, in California, there are quite a few naturopathic doctors. And then also 
working in the mental health field is really interesting because there's a tremendous a lot of people, you know, one out of three people have been diagnosed with some type of mental health problem, both kids and, you know, regular adults and seniors. And so the idea of using food to help people with mood issues is very important. And food sensitivities is actually a really important area because people may be reactive to wheat or dairy or corn or soy or meat in addition to refined foods, even some of some of the natural foods they may have reactions to that are actually creating some damage to their system. So those are things that we can bring to people's attention and they can either rotate foods out of their diet for a couple of weeks, go on a challenge, gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, sugar-free challenge. Those are the big three really is sugar, milk products, and uh, wheat products. And in some cases, people notice quite a quite an improvement. And then they reintroduce some of those foods, and they notice an exacerbation of symptoms. And they go, wow, there's really something going on there. And then there are also lab tests that can be ordered if they're so inclined, and that can also look at blood work and give people an idea of some of the foods that create immune response. So it creates an inflammatory disorder because those foods trigger an immune response. And it's largely because those foods have been highly altered through time. So wheat normally is fairly low protein, 12% protein, in something like spelt, which is a traditional wheat product. And then bread flour now is can be up to 28% protein, so the protein is much thicker and denser and harder to digest. And people eat a lot of bread. Bread, cookies, pasta, pastries, all that. So it's it's a big shift, and then they need someone to help them cook because if their food choices are changing and they really never cook for themselves, two out of three people don't seem to cook for themselves anymore. You know, people buy food that's already prepared and heated in a microwave oven at a high temperature. So mm. it, it kind of makes the food less digestible. Now, you mentioned incorporating a spiritual aspect to the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think the most significant way is just the the consistent care for people. That I can't teach people religion in a nutrition course. That would be inappropriate. But being person-based and not disease-based and getting to know people on a as deep a level as they're willing to be known and encouraging people to look within themselves for, for solutions and then to have spiritual food, whether it's from their religion of origin or whether it's a new study, but having reading materials and being part of of a culture that really values the earth and values the you know all life forms um, is something that I teach. And I've been at business meetings and people say, you know, Ed, you have a really great spiritual orientation, and I'm not talking about spirituality. I'm not talking about religion. I'm just communicating. But as people become more um, authentic within themselves and more heart-centered and even soul-based, where they recognize that people have a soul and the soul's committed to spirit, some of that I can discuss in a one-on-one, you know, if the person's open to it. Because a successful relationship, let's say someone's got a fairly advanced illness, 
um, it opens up the door to connect with them in a deep way. And it's not just, here's some foods to eat, see you later. It's to meet with them on a repeated basis and to become a mentor for them and to get to know them and, and, you know, even look at issues of life and death and how they feel about that. And and they don't feel alone or or without a connection to spirit if, if that's their choice. So when I teach my classes and we do case studies, I'll, I'll speak about these things. It's not in the textbooks. Like, you know, make sure you have a spiritual teaching because that can be a little presumptive. But it is part of the healing arts. You know, even the practice of mindfulness, mindful eating, mindful living, um, is really new for a lot of people. And that harkens back to the meditation work I did 40 years ago, and I still do to some extent, although it's it's not front and center, but just to really look at the food and recognize that that food came from the earth and recognize that that food carries a certain element of life and spirit and that it's not just a commodity. It's not just something to fill our bellies, but something that can have a lot of meaning and, and a lot of value, particularly when we relate to it as something that's very special. And then if people are encouraged to grow a little food, that's another extension of the work that everyone complains about the high cost of food. And it is. It's really expensive and it keeps going up. If people could grow some herbs in their backyard or grow some salad, have a little salad garden or have a fruit tree and plant it in the backyard. We have a small yard. We have 14 different bushes and fruit trees. Comes the summer, we, we have a lot of food that comes out of our yard and then teaching people how to put it up in freezing it and canning it and drying it, then it, it's going back to the old school about, yeah, when when there's a good season, you can grow food and harvest it or even go to a farmer's market and, and support your local farmers and then learn how to make jam or dried tomatoes or dried peaches, something like that. It's different. Our My approach to nutrition is not about selling dietary supplements. And for a lot of people, that's what they see and that's what they hear because it's in the marketplace. And I'm not contrary to supplements, but they're a supplement. They're not primary. So reminding people about being involved in the foods and shopping and cooking and eating and sharing food with other people and, and creating a culture that is is friendly and also diverse. That's a big part for me of, of Baha'i Faith is it's so diverse and welcoming new people and strangers. I have a workshop called um, Nutrition and Self-Care, a Baha'i and Modern Perspective. You know, I teach it periodically for, for our Baha'i friends and also the community. And then I can bring in a little bit of, people know there's a Baha'i element here, and I can bring in some of the writings and the teachings from the faith, and then also give, give them a, a short course in whole food nutrition for 45 minutes, and then enjoy a home-cooked meal from fresh seasonal food, and then have a consultation on how we can be more supportive of each other, because we're really busy and you get a little burnt out and may not be taking care of ourselves. So how can we as a community make sure that we have the nourishment we need from the food and also from teaching and, and our practices and our family life to 
to have a good life. So it's nice to be able to do that with people who are, who are Baha'is and people who are not Baha'is. So that that's just a course that I was able to put together, and I like to share that. Now, what kind of student would find Bowman College helpful? Well, a lot of people are second career. So it's people who've been in the world, been in tech industry, corporate world. Some people have raised families. You know, they love this kind of work. They're just, just like I was inclined towards food and healing. This is something that people have had an avocation for and now would like a professional training and certification. And then with the culinary side, I'm seeing a lot more young people who don't want to go to college or didn't really do well in college and who want to trade and want a skill. It's fabulous for them because there's a real need for discipline and sobriety because young people can be a little bit wild and if they're going to be a chef and they have knives in their hands, they have to be very clear and precise. And, you know, there's there's a certain type of responsibility here. And if people recognize that and they're they're diligent, they they come away with a professional skill and, and kind of a life-changing experience. And then they're also exposed to all this great information about food and healing and, and, and being cooking for people because... There's a real demand for therapeutic cooking where people are ill and they, you know, they want healthy whole food diet, but they can't make it themselves. And also cooking for families or cooking for groups or catering, retreats, things like that. So we have people of all ages. Ed, where would you like to see Bowman College go into the future? I would like it to have longevity mm-hmm. and sustainability. And my personal focus is on building a profession for my graduates. So right now, most of the folks create their own business. Some people will start a restaurant. Some people will start a catering company. Some of the nutritionists will work in a, in a medical setting or work for a company such as a supplement company. But my calling right now is to bring good food and nutrition awareness and lifestyle awareness to the medical system. So that's that's what I'm about. I'm about talking to doctors, talking about clinics, particularly, you know, Medicare, Medi-Cal. Medicare is the national insurance. And with the Obamacare, is finding a connection in the government, health and human services, so that there's a lot of opportunity for people to do hands-on learning, not just to go to a clinic and get a pill or even go to a dietitian and get a piece of paper that tells them what to do, but engage people in, in active learning and, and being part of educational systems and, and learning how to take care of themselves and having government and insurance co-pay, pay the big part of that, because the cost of out-of-pocket care is pretty high, and that rules out people who actually want it and like it and, and would benefit. So. I'm working on bringing the the cost-benefit argument to the mainstream and then supporting more backyard farming and backyard gardening and, and greening of the planet. So the college is a place where people get training and then they go back to where they came from. And they can they can do a lot of community education and 
and also become integrated in, in clinical, community, and corporate kinds of programs. There's a whole movement afoot for companies to have more employee wellness programs. So I, I've developed some of those that are really very engaging. It's a progressive thing. Nutrition itself is a living art. It's it's not stagnant. It's not the system defines it and that's the way it is. It It, it changes over time and possibilities are infinite. So eating for health is the model I created. It's 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 a way of looking at things and looking at portions and proportions of foods and nutrients for people to really enjoy taking care of themselves rather than seeing it as somewhat of a chore and deflect some attention away from the media and away from spending so much time on your computer and you know your your personal cell phones and you know those type of things because it it takes time away from cooking and physical activity and and communal activity you know being with being with friends in the community so it's teaching simple but but important message that a lot of cultures that's the way they live and uh, I'm doing a retreat coming up it's a fasting retreat where people will have juices and teas and vegetable broths and smoothies, so it's not just a water fast, and go away for four days and be in the redwood forest and live in a beautiful retreat center and do yoga and meditation and go for hikes and swimming and spa and have classes in the evening. It's called Vitality Fasting Retreat. I do two of those a year. And a lot of people come in pretty unhappy and pretty sick, and after several days to a week, not having caffeine, not having sugar, not having bad food, you know, just having vegetables and fruits and things of that nature, they really freshen up. <laughs> and then they learn about how they can improve their food choices when they go home. It's a whole nother way of being with people. And we have about 40 people at a time. So the social and spiritual elements are really served by bringing a kind of a diverse group together with a little bit of structure and theme. I mean, there's some, but it's not preachy. It's like, hey, try these things. See how see how they work. You have a choice. You can go to an activity or you can take a nap or go for a walk. Very powerful. I've been doing that for 30 years. Well, Ed, thank you so much for telling us your story and your work. It sounds great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ed Bowman president and founder of Bowman College, which aims to create a sustainable culture of wellness in individuals by promoting an approach to holistic nutrition and the culinary arts. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
trespasses have covered my face with shame in thy presence and have burdened my back before thee have intervened between me Blessed be tea, the 
that he never lets your heart slip. The enemy, he's got a harsh grip. But when it's got the flips, the script, you're well equipped, spiritual battleship. Bond with friendship, you never trip like a child. You skip along the path of peace until the scales. They try to strip you of nobility, but they're foolish, see, because your purity streams from your lips. See the end in the beginning, the beginning and the end. In the enemy, find a brother, in the stranger, find a friend. I never had to live those words quite like you do, or my faith defend. But you inspire me to pick up a pen and write verses. Though this is rehearsed, it's from the heart. The world bursts into the seams and falls apart. But through long suffering, you're building the whole thing in you. I want to tell the world about the struggle that you're going through. I know you're going through hardship. I pray to the blessed beauty that he never lets your heart slip. The enemy, he's got a harsh grip. But when it's got the flips, the script, you're well equipped. Spiritual battleship, bond with friendship. You never trip like a child. You skip along the path of peace until the scales tip. They try to strip you of nobility. But they're foolish, see, because your purity streams from your lips. Yo, they can't see that you've been free since you believe. Only fooling themselves when they think you're in captivity. But love is the greatest weapon. It refuses to fight. Only knows how to bring us closer and to show us the light. The guides in darkness when all you see is heartless cruelty. Mirror forth his beauty. And I know of a certainty that his providence is disguised as calamity. So after the crisis, there'll always come a victory. I know you're going through hardship. I pray to the blessed beauty that he never lets your heart slip. The enemy, he's got a harsh grip. But when it's got the flips, the script, you're well equipped. Spiritual battleship, bond with friendship. You never trip like a child. You skip along the path of peace until the scales. They try to strip you of nobility. But they're foolish, see, because your purity streams from your lips. I know you're going through hardship, hardship, hardship. I know you're going through hardship, hardship, hardship. I know you're going through hardship. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.